This is the SFF Audio Podcast. I'm Scott. I'm Jesse. I'm Tamahome. And I'm Eric. Hello, everybody. Hello. Are, are we men or animals today? Or both? I, I'm both. Yeah, half and half. Half and half, yeah. Today we're talking about The Island of Dr. Them. Moreau by H.G. Wells. and This is the first time I've read this book. Um, first and time I know, as well. And I know that uh, after today's discussion, I'm going to read it again. Because I'm uh, kind of in the air about it uh, right now. I, I I feel like there's a lot of stuff there that I don't quite get yet. Totally. Yeah. So. Um, oh, yeah, I've heard about this all my life, but I never actually read the original story. It's it's great to re- read the original. Uh huh. You know, I I saw a movie version of it years ago with um. Uh, what's that famous? Charles actor? What? The Island of Lost Souls. No, it, it was called The Island of Dr. Moreau. And who, uh, oh, gosh, with, uh, the guy who was the godfather. Earl Lancaster and uh, the guy from Logan's Run. Who who Michael played the York. godfather? Why can't I remember his name? Marlon Brando. Wasn't he in oh, a version of this? Oh, you saw the Marlon Brando version. Yeah, was that yeah, any? Yeah, he was. Val, yeah. Val Kilmer and Mal, Marlon Brando from 1996. Okay. Apparently it's terrible. Yeah, it wasn't. Oh, I've seen it. It's yeah. bad. <laughs> Long time ago. So unfortunately, I had... Marlon Brando in my head uh, during this. <laughs> uh, fortunately, the movie has very little to do with the book. So yes, yes, and it did. I'm, I'm hoping, Scott, that as you got into the book, you were able to sort of let the movie atrophy. I did. Evaporate. Yes, I was. I, I certainly did. You bet. One yep. thing I noticed about all the adaptations I've, I've read of it, except for the comic book version, they always changed his name. Uh, it was never Prendick. It was always Prentice or Parker or some, something else. And I, I was, you know, this is a, a fiction story, so you can make up any old name and give it to any any character. Um, I think in the um, this collection of uh, essays by Margaret Atwood, uh, she explains what the name Moreau means, and she also tries to tackle what Prendick means. Um, do you guys want to hear about that? Sure. Sure. Okay, so Moreau uh, was like, uh, I think it's a French word for moor, but more basically it's um, uh, the sound more, right? Death and oh, water uh, in French. Hmm. Um, I think she's wrong. Okay. Uh, and mm-hmm. if, you, if you if you'll go to your handy French dictionary, Jesse, uh-huh. you will find out that Moreau, which is also the name of a, a famous uh, uh, artist, Gustave Moreau, who does horrifying kinds of things. He has a famous series of etchings for Dante's Inferno. Um, you'll find out that Moreau is a rare word in French that means black. Uh-huh. The way ebony is a comparatively rare word in English that means black. Mm-hmm. And specifically, the black that Moreau means, the way ebony is specifically a kind of tree, or anthracite is a word for black that means specifically a shiny kind of coal. Moreau is the black of a funeral shroud. 
Mm. I don't think there can be any doubt that for a native speaker of French, that would be the use of the word. It's not simply a matter of its homophones in English. Mm. Uh, what, 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 what do you think of uh, Prendick then? Because she, she had a story on that as well. She said, well, his name Prendick you. is suggested of thick coupled with prig. This is the last, uh, this <laughs> last thing is explicitly stated. Um, and then it says, to those versed in legal lore, it would suggest prender, a term for something you are empowered to take with it having been offered. Uh, and that's, then it also it's, suggests it's that, that I agree with. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that latter one. I think the so-called right of prender, which is the right to use something without owning it, is exactly the case for Prendick. So um, why would he be called because, that? Well, because what Prendick in, does, in fact, is appropriate Moreau's Island. Yeah. Right? I mean, okay. Prendick, Prendick is an untrustworthy narrator who claims, you know, surprise at all of these things that he's saying. But in fact, the manuscript that we're supposedly reading is written after all of these events have happened. And so by making believe that he does not know what he's talking about at the moment that he is writing, he allows us to get the false impression that he did not come to understand them so that it will be a surprise to us. That is, he's building himself up as a storyteller in order to increase the effect of his story which is to say that he is willing to use us, and in fact, he uses everyone in the novel. He uses Moreau to make himself a demigod at the end, when he says, you know, Moreau is gone, but he's watching from above, and I'm here to represent him, and so on. Right? I mean, he makes a false church. Um, he uses people all the time. In fact, I would go a lot further than that, but I'll wait a while till we get further into the book. But I think this idea of Prender, he thinks that that's the case, that he has that right. And, you know, the book begins with that introduction from his nephew. And we're told his nephew's name is also Prender. Yeah. Right? Charles I mean, it's Edward. Charles Edward Prendick, Prendick instead yeah. of just Edward Prendick. So, you know, what does Edward mean? Edward is an old English word, and it means happy guardian. So Charles Edward Prendick and Edward Prendick clearly share their names. Obviously, Wells, who is immensely learned, um, is not having them have exactly have virtually the same name so that we won't pay attention to it. So then you have to ask, okay, so what's the difference between Edward Prendick and Charles Edward Prendick? And the difference is Charles. Well, Charles is cognate with churl. It just means an ordinary, absolutely common man. Hmm. And what we have, I think, in that introduction is a defense that his uncle, a private gentleman, as we're told, meaning he's not really in the aristocracy, but he has enough money that he never has to work. That is, Edward Prendick lives off other people. Um, Now that his uncle is dead, if this story comes out, he does not want his uncle to have forfeited all of his money. Charles wants to be able to have the inheritance. Mm-hmm. And so this churl is simply also trying to have the right to use somebody else's stuff. It, it runs throughout this book. If you had to ask, you know, what's the single biggest theme in the book? 
it seems to me that it is the necessity of recognizing that there are natural propensities that modern European culture deforms. Hmm. They, they, they are imperialistic. They change the shape of things. They put ownership on things that shouldn't be owned. Modern European culture deforms the natural state of things, and it does so nominally to improve them. I mean, Moreau's claim is, I mean, Prendick says, that is, Edward Prendick says, that he thought that, you know, humans had been bestialized by Moreau. <laughs> but only later does he realize that Moreau is trying to humanize beasts. I mean, hmm. nominally, European culture is trying to improve things. But throughout the book, every time European culture tries to improve things, it deforms their natural state. So and it does European so. man's burden. <laughs> exactly. Yes, the white man's exactly. burden. Exactly. Yeah. The white man's burden, but his name is black. <laughs> yeah, I I kind of uh, felt that there were there were two main themes in there that to me felt um, that that they were at odds with each other, and the first one is kind of anti scientific um, because he seemed to be saying that um, some types of scientific progress are very dangerous and we need to be very careful, and then the other thing is. Um, we're really human beings are really just animals. You know, definitely, definitely working with both of those, I think. But yeah, I mean, but they seem like they're almost opposed to each other. I mean, one's kind of a pro science or pro Darwin point of view. And then the other one is kind of an anti, you know, uh, progress point of view. Although I, I don't think he was in any way saying we need to stop progress, but it was more of a, Hey, we need to stop and think about things before we uh, do certain things. Well, one of, one of the things that I was thinking along those lines was um, with with Darwin, you get um, the questioning of the 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 moral narrative of humans. Right, they come from God created in the garden, and eventually get to where they are today, which is the rational being. Um, but when people are confronted by this, they rege often reject the, the, the story of evolution and natural selection because it uh, makes life meaningless. And if, if uh, you look at the, the characters who are all, all believers, except for the, you know, the, the humans turned to animal, uh, animals turned humans, sorry, uh, who are all believers in the theory of evolution, you know, Montgomery, Moreau, and and our our protagonists are all uh, believers. They all are lacking a direction. Uh, they, you know, our our Moreau is experimenting in in the way he is, in you know, horrific way he is, because that's where the science leads him, and that's all. He has no ultimate goal. He's just seeing what can be done and seeing what he can do. Mm -hmm. Uh and Montgomery is is there sort of as as uh you know having fled England after 10 years uh for doing some sort of uh shameful crime 
he's lacking direction. We don't know why he's on the island other than, you know, Moreau took him up and gave him a place to go. Uh, he had to go to the ends of the earth. And then our main character, uh, Prendick, he is, he's floating about the ocean. He's all at sea, not going in any particular place except, I guess, to explore the world. They're all directionless in that they can't, they can't, uh, see a, a direction towards life, right? It's, it's just exploring the world, um, or exploring what can be done in the world. That's what I was trying to think of a theme that sort of unified everything, and that was the only one that I could sort of see. Okay. That would unify everything. Yeah, I certainly don't have anything to argue with on that. Um, yeah, it's uh, Moreau definitely lacked compassion. Um, he seemed to have thought thought it all through too. He says, you know, pain is not doesn't matter, pleasure mm-hmm. doesn't matter. Um, that doesn't matter is is uh is is sort of maybe the explanation for why he can do what he does um but <laughs> it certainly matters to the creatures he's he's vivisecting mhm but because they're I... animals maybe it doesn't matter <laughs> i don't under- I, I don't know what to think about a lot of this stuff yeah, I mean, a, a lot was made during the during the story about the pain that these creatures were going through the all the time. Yeah, I mean, it was very clear that it was well, extremely what... painful. Life is the house of pain. <laughs> I, I I think that uh, that Wells is deeply concerned, as is Mary Shelley with the relationship of science and the scientists to the larger surrounding community. Uh, I, I don't see the things that we've been talking about here as mutually uh, exclusive. I think of them as falling within this context of how one functions in community. Um, science, I don't believe, is being criticized here. It's science that is not aware of its moral obligations. Um, there's the line where Prendick remembers having heard of Moreau, and he remembers that Moreau was hounded out of Europe mm-hmm. by his scientific colleagues because of the kinds of experiments that he was doing. Um, the, the, at the point at which he says that, uh, Prendick says, and this is so disingenuous because he's writing the damn thing after it's all over. But he says, I was thinking the Moreau, you know, he's trying to remember the, the headline that he had written, read in the newspaper. And he says, the Moreau, the Moreau hollows? No, no, the Re- Moreau horrors. Yeah. And it's on the base of the Moreau horrors that he's, he's, He's kicked out of Europe. So uh, two points, I think, about that. One, um, there is a scientific community that does understand that there are boundaries. And as a community, they exclude Moreau. And so what Moreau does is set up a kingdom. He becomes a colonial overlord and creates his own subjects in his image of what they should be so that he has to have no concern for what anyone else would think. He has no true community except the one that he creates by domination. 
And I think that Wells is making a very important political um, point there. Um, and there are historic backgrounds for that that I, I, I can I, I, it would be fun to share with you at, at some point. Um, but the very first line of the book from the introduction, it says, on February the 1st, 1887, the Lady Vane was lost by collision with a derelict about when about the latitude one degree south and longitude 107 degrees west. The Lady Vane is the name of the ship. And as you say, it's it's fiction. You could make up any name you want. You could call it the Endeavor. You could call it the Pequod. You could call it the Enterprise. I mean, there are names of ships that have uh, important resonances. And Wells doesn't pick that. Wells says the Lady Vane. Now, in my mind, Lady Vane has an immediate resonance with Lady Day. Um, and I know what Lady Day is. Lady Day is famous because it's uh, nowadays uh, around the world because it's the nickname for Billie Holiday, um, the, the great jazz singer. But she takes that phrase, Lady Day, as her nickname um, because she is divine. And the the phrase Lady Day, as a Catholic would know, certainly a Catholic who grew up before Vatican II, a Lady Day is any day on the saint calendar of saints where one of the saints honored is the Virgin Mary. So Lady Day has to do with divine creativity. The word vain etymologically means empty. So Prendick presumably is on this boat, the Lady Vane, which is a, a kind of ironic reversal of what it would be if he were on the St. Mary. Hmm. And when, when Prendick tries to remember the headline, he doesn't just say, oh, I remember the headline, the Moreau Horrors. He says, I remember the Moreau Hollows. So Wells is letting us see that there is this fundamental emptiness, the lack of divine creativity in Moreau from the very beginning. He's got these wonderful allusions that run all through the novel to tie the question of, of ethical behavior to the very same issues that one would see if one were, in fact, a Christian in spirit rather than a Christian trying to promulgate the institution of a European religion. And it seems to me this runs throughout the entire thing. Which, by the way, the, the New World, the New World, um, can't take that crap. So if you take a look in the next paragraph in that preface, um, he comes off the island. He's found in a schooner, right? He's found in a, in a, um, a lifeboat from the missing schooner Ipecacuanha. And Ipecacuanha is a Portuguese word that is the name of a plant native to Brazil. And the plant native to Brazil is gives its name to what was in the home of every Victorian Ipecac. Yeah. That right? It's an emetic. It yeah. right it makes you throw up. Right? So the lady vein from Europe comes over, brings Prendick into this island that he, in fact, tries to take over when he finally can, when Moreau is gone, and the island vomits him back out again, right? Mm. Uh, I think that, that Wells is really writing something very important about 
the natural community in which people should function and the limitations on that and to to function well is to function in the community and not to function in the community is necessarily to function badly so at the very end when we see prendick unable to have any sense of community with the people around him when he's back in london doing chemistry during the day and astronomy at night he's trying to lose himself in science instead of being able to deal with people it recalls the exact kind of transformation that Gulliver undergoes at the end of Gulliver's travels. He comes back having seen what real people should be like, mm-hmm. you know, in the voyage to the Winhams, and he no longer can stand ordinary humans. But Gulliver has actually changed, whereas Prendick, I would put it to you, has not changed. That Prendick was always a user, a private gentleman who lived off other people's labor from before he ever gets to Moreau's Island. It's interesting that uh, I mean I was thinking about all the the messing about in boats that happens before we get to the actual island and the actual story, uh, you know, of of the plot begins, um, and and then I, I went back and re- I was re- started rereading the book after I re- read it, and I and then I noticed the first line is how did how did the ship how did he end up in that boat? He ended up in that boat because they crashed into another boat. Yep. In the middle of the Pacific, they yep. cla- crashed into a derelict ship. The chances of smash to to sink by by hitting another ship in the middle of the ocean are very very small. Dynamite <laughs> observation, Jesse. Dynamite. Why why is this empty ship sitting in the middle of the ocean? It's just a casual line. It's never mentioned again. But then the next line, you know, the, uh, he, he ends up uh, on another ship, the, the Ipecacuanha. Ipecacuanha. The N-H is pronounced like the N-A in Spanish. Okay. Um, and on that, on that ship, he, he meets another uh, bunch of people uh, who, you know, the, who introduce us to the story, Montgomery and Maling, and then the captain of the ship, um, who is a uh, he's described as being three quarters drunk, um, right. uh, and uh, it's it's just there's something weird going on there. Uh, anybody got any ideas? Should I restrain myself? I don't, <laughs> I don't no, what, know. What I'm, leaps to my mind is, uh, you know, as I'm just thinking about it here because I didn't notice it when I read it, but. As I think about it here, it's just mankind's way of finding the one thing that's uh, destructive and uh, hitting it. It doesn't matter where it is. Hmm. That's kind of cool. I I think that each of the boats is, you know, ship of fools. You know, that that medieval um, stand-in for microcosm. That Moreau's Island is, to some extent, a microcosm that the ships are microcosms, and when Prendick uh, escapes alone, that tells us that his society is, in fact, one of isolation, that he is not a part of a community. And sure enough, when he gets back to London, there he is. So when you see this European boat out there and it runs into a derelict, it is, among other things, um, a foreshadowing of the impossibility of European culture um, meeting itself, that it, it is 
it's destructive, just as you say, Scott. Mm. Um, why is it derelict? Why is it empty? Because it was, in fact, not a, a community that could be sustained. Right? If each boat is microcosmic, that shows us the end state of those boats. I tried to look up on the map uh, the 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 degrees of longitude and latitude to see what was there, um, but I didn't have much success. There is an island. I'm telling you, Wells is just so goddamn smart. There <laughs> is an island, and it's called Adonai. A-D-D-A-N-E-Y-E. Oh, oh, my. Right? And you start thinking about that. So it's ad an I, that is an, 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 an ocular orb or an ego comes along when Prendick adds an I to this island. But the word ad an I sounds a heck of a lot like Adonai. It sure which does. Is Hebrew for our Lord. Right, and here's Moro trying to set himself up as a god, but in fact, the word Adonai comes from. And remember, uh, the island has no name, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> when he gets there, it, it comes from uh -huh. something. I think it's Welsh. I forget the background, but I remember looking it up once, and it means a noble lives there. Ah. Hmm. And we are told that it was noble. That, you know, Charles says that it may have been Noble's Island. So. In fact, it, in, 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 on the map, it is an island called A Noble Lives There. So Wells has just got all this stuff wrapped up together. Mm. It's just amazing. I mean, you, you were talking about um, you know, trying to impose one on the other. Um, I tried to think to myself, you know, I mean, you know, the cat woman. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, they, they all have obvious names. So, so the question is, why is Maling called Maling? I was thinking Manling. I think you're absolutely right. He's, he's, he's the servant of, of a man, right? And he's trying mm -hmm. to be a man. And he's a right. dog, right? We find out he's a dog, I believe. Mm -hmm. No, he's a chimp. He, he's an ape. Uh, oh. He's an oh, ape. Okay. Uh, I thought I, I, maybe I'm mistaken. I, I thought he was an ape. I thought he was a dog. But, uh, well, I can look it up. But, um, yeah. You know he he is the he is the most human of the of the ones we meet. Uh, well, one of the most human of the animals, right? Mm -hmm. And is he the also the one who later on devotes himself to uh, Prendick? Yep. Then well, no, it, the chimp devotes himself to Prendick. He keeps saying, you know, I have I have an opposing thumb, and I have these big words. I mean, he's the one who is sycophantic. But Mling does work with Prendick. That's uh, oh yeah. On. Okay, I think there's a, there's another Saint dog man at the end that refrains. Yeah, uh, yeah it's Saint Bernard based. <laughs> right. Yeah. A beast man created from the Saint Bernard <clears throat> comes. I I, th I think it's I think you're right about Manling, and I think that Wells gives us a hint to that too. Uh, how so? Well, so I'm going to remind you this question of about community again. There are a lot of ways to understand community, and if before Moreau gets to the island, it has no, it has only animals on it. And then he imports yet more animals. So remember, Hobbes famously tells us in Leviathan that the state That's of. About that book, too. 
I beg your pardon? I was thinking about that book, uh, The State of Nature. and Exactly. And Man in the State of Nature has a life that's nasty, poor, that's solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, meaning like animals. Mm-hmm. Solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Okay? Mm-hmm. So what Hobbes recommends in order to avoid those things, which turn out to be a lot like the life of Moreau, right, um, is that we have a sense of hierarchical authority where God grants power to the monarch and the monarch uh, controls the life and the laws of the vassals on down the line. So the, the earls are vassal to the king and the duke, I mean the duke to the king and the earls to the duke and so on all the way down to ordinary families where the father is the lord of the mother and they collectively are lords of the children. So we have the so-called great chain of being. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if you take a look at, um, in my copy, the, well, I have several, but one of the versions of the novel I'm holding, um, uh, let's see, what chapter are we in? Um, it's chapter 16, um, which is called uh, How the Beast Folk Tasted Blood. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this chapter, there is a point at which the the characters from the House of Pain walk across the island, off past the ravine. They're on their way over to where the beast people live. And the paragraph says, In the afternoon, Moreau, Montgomery, myself, and Mling went across the island to the huts in the ravine. Um, I, I love the fact that if you slow down, you'll realize that Wells is actually also writing verse. Ma, 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 ma. And then he gets Maling rhyming with ravine. I mean, I mean, if you break this up in the afternoon, Moreau, Montgomery, myself, and Mling went across the island to the huts in the ravine. I mean, it's it's amazing how good a writer Wells is. But yes, the alliteration, the consonants, grabs your your ear. Moreau, Montgomery, myself, Mling. It's the great chain of being. Mm. Moreau is the god of the island. Montgomery, which means defender of the mountain, um, is the uh, is his vicar. Myself, rather than you know me or Prendick or you know then I or whatever. Myself and Maling, we're going lower and lower on mm. the field on on the, the chain of authority. And when Montgomery and Moreau are both dead myself decides to supplant them mm-hmm. right, so it doesn't say myself does it it does it says that well oh my myself i decided oh says, no 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 no, no but it shot. says right here in in the afternoon my, 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 yeah, yeah. montgomery myself and Maling. yeah no no he never says i tried to supplant them but but he just said i am here i represent moreau he seems like uh, the, the way you're you're telling the story prendick being a user um it it, it totally contradicts the way he tells the story, right? He's telling the story as if, oh, these, this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and I didn't know what to think, you know? Uh, even when he was on the boat at the beginning, uh, and the, he's on there with the three sailors, one of them's a, uh, a German, and they, they look at each other <laughs> with right. the eyes, uh, you know, their eyes doing strange things. <laughs> it's like yep. they're eyeing each other, you know, to see wh- who's made out of, uh, juicy material that they can eat or drink um and then 
he says one one of them, uh, the sailor wanted to toss coins or something to to determine who got uh, whatever, and he doesn't explain it. But you know, he agrees to it. He agrees yep. to it. He is actually not a uh, he's not a hero in the traditional sense. He just makes himself out to be a little less non-heroic. I think it's worse than that, though, Jesse. I mean, he says the lot fell upon the sailor, right, who is the one who suggested this to begin with. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's poetic justice. And then in that paragraph that says the lot fell to the sailor, um, okay, but but he was the strongest, and so he would not abide by it. Mm -hmm. So he attacked Helmar with his hands. Interesting, he attacks Helmar. He doesn't attack Prendick. They grappled together and almost stood up. I crawled along the boat to them, intending to help Helmar (laughs) by grasping the sailor's leg. See, I only want to do the good stuff. But the sailor stumbled from the swaying of the boat. Here we go back, Scott, to your observation about boats being so important. This is the kind of community they've got going. And the two fell upon the gunwale and rolled overboard together. They sank like stones. I remember laughing at that and wondering why I laughed. Yeah. The laugh caught me suddenly like a thing from without. And that's crap. Nobody sinks like a stone. If you're unconscious, you don't sink like a stone. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. drop a human being in salt water. You can't sink at all until your lungs get filled with water. And once you do sink, I mean, unless you're just incredibly, incredibly skinny, you still sink pretty darn slowly because we are mostly made out of water, right? You don't sink like stones. He could have reached out and grabbed one if this were true. So he's he's automatically saying, well, he's telling us there that he's either wasn't courageous (laughs) enough to do that or maybe he killed these guys. Exactly. That clearly what the sailor had proposed was cannibalism. Yeah, yeah. And they had all agreed, but Prendick is trying to tell the story in such a way that he's exonerated from cannibalism. But in fact, he is cannibal. Wow. And and then that, I think the reason that was in there is because the, later on when we get the 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 law, right? Mm-hmm. Um it says not to go on all fours in the law is is the law. That is the law. Are we not men? Not to suck up drink, that is the law. Are we not men? Not to eat fish or flesh, that is the law. Well, when everybody is a person, when every animal is a person, you better have a law against cannibalism, which would mean everybody has to be a vegetarian. Exactly. But in fact, none of this is a law that does not exist for them. This is a law that exists for Moreau. Right, it's not to go on all fours. Are we not men? Well, right, men don't go on all fours. Not to suck up drink. Men suck up drink all the time. Yeah, it, mm-hmm. that, that, that's kind of a. It's like to make them more European, right? Well, but the thing is, I mean, you and I—we're all European. I mean, in descent. Um, um, that is, we all are in, have the heritage of Western culture as part of our uh, our learning. Um, when I want to get a drink out of a sink and I don't have a, a cup nearby, I cup my hands and I use it to suck up drink. Mm-hmm. Right? Why does why does Moreau say this to them? He wants them not to bend down and act like animals because he wants to make them think that they have to function the way he does. And I, Again, I, if you don't mind, I'd make two points about this. One has to do with what's inside the novel and one has to do with what's outside the novel. Inside the novel, I'm now in... Uh, 
let's see, this is chapter 19. Hmm. So, and I, Montgomery, this is where Montgomery dies. I'm in the last page of chapter 19. So Montgomery burned the boats to revenge himself upon me and prevent our return to mankind. Back again to, to the observation of the boats being so important. A sudden convulsion of rage shook me. I was almost moved to batter his foolish head in as he lay there helpless at my feet. Then suddenly his hand moved, so feebly, so pitifully, that my wrath vanished. He groaned and opened his eyes for a minute. I knelt down beside him and raised his head. He opened his eyes again, staring silently at the dawn, and then met, they met mine. The lids fell. Sorry, he said presently with an effort. He seemed trying to think. The last, he murmured, the last of this silly universe. What a mess. I listened. His head fell helplessly to one side. I thought some drink might revive him, but there was neither drink nor vessel in which to bring drink at hand. Mm. So that's the second time I wanted to raise my fist to batter his head. He moves his hand. Now he says there was neither drink nor vessel at hand. The implied author is letting us re realize if you have a goddamn hand, you can bring him water. Mm -hmm. He seemed suddenly heavier. My heart went cold. I bent down to his face and put my hand through the rent in his blouse. He was dead. It seems to me that this is a wonderful fairy tale wish fulfillment <laughs> because Prendick wants to supplant Montgomery as being the head honcho European on the island. I don't believe for a minute that he that Montgomery conveniently died just in time to dissipate the lethal rage that Prendick was feeling. I think that just as at the beginning of the novel that you pointed to, Jesse, Prendick is telling the story in such a way as to exonerate himself from having thought that murdering another human being was a good idea, but conveniently not having to do it. There's a there's a whole there's a whole theme of drinking and alcohol in here, and I thought maybe this is just the 19th century, you know, the the movement towards towards uh, abst abstinence and such from alcohol. Um, but well, but here it was just water. I mean, yeah, in in this case it's water. But uh, in that same chapter, uh, <laughs> it says. Um, Beast said he, "You're the beast. He takes his liquor like a Christian." And 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 if we remember back to the the Ipecac uh, ship, right? Uh, the captain there is is three quarters drunken, and, and when when uh, he sort of represents something, uh, uh, clearly he represents something, but I'm not quite at it. But there's this line where he he's arguing with uh, Prendick, and he says. You're not Mr. Prendick. You're Mr. Shut Up. <laughs> and then he says, Mr. Shut Up, get off of my ship, Mr. Shut Up. And he keeps saying, Mr. Shut Up, Mr. Shut Like, uh, there's something, there's, there's, it must be some contemporary argument, uh, about, uh, you know, what should be done and about alcohol, alcoholism. Do you have any idea what's going on there? Well, remember I said there were two things, one from inside the book and one from outside the okay, book. Okay. Yeah. So my uh, my uh, 
still missed late colleague Lem Johnson, um, who is uh, a native West African, um, but was a member of my department for many years until he died too young. Um, knowing that I was um, interested in the island of Dr. Moreau gave me something that he had found doing his own work on negritude. So what I'm about to read to you is the Queen's birthday speech. Okay, so this is in Australia. This is the governor of Australia, an Englishman, a white man, who is giving a public address to Aborigines on the official day of the Queen's birthday in 1838. Okay, this is for real. Right? It's a goodwill party thrown by the governor. He's in full dress uniform. Right? And here come the Aborigines, and he speaks to them. Black men. We wish to make you happy, but you cannot be happy unless you imitate good white men. Build huts, wear clothes, work and be useful. Above all, you cannot be happy unless you love God who made heaven and earth and men and all things. Love white men, love other tribes of black men. Do not quarrel together. Tell other tribes to love white men and to build good huts and wear clothes. Learn to speak English. If any man injure you, tell the protector, and he will do you justice. So what, what the British were actually doing with the Aborigines in Australia was trying to get them to be their idea of a completely pacific God-fearing, calm Christian, while they themselves, in fact, came in with guns and liquor, just the way in America, uh, certainly in the United States, there were laws to prevent the American Aborigines, the Native Americans, from consuming alcohol. The same thing was true in Australia. Because the effect on these folks who had never had alcohol as children growing up was extreme, and it made it harder to control them. The church is joined with the state and uses language as an instrument of repression, and that is incorporated in the law. So when it says do not suck up and so on, mm -hmm. it's drinking in general, but I think you're right, Jesse, if you ask, well, to drink what? Well, don't drink a certain way, and hey, man. Don't drink. You've got a drinking problem. Mm -hmm. So I think mm -hmm. your alcohol reference is right, but it's part of a larger notion of controlling how they survive at all. Uh, one thing we, we've not addressed at all <laughs> is that uh, this is a completely impossible story. It's, it's, it is more like a fable than, than uh, I think, uh, any other um, story by... By Wells that I've read. I mean, I, I guess you know the time machine is impossible as well. The Invisible Man—they're all impossibilities. But this one, you know, if you vivisect a, an animal and I don't know, do all the things that Moreau says he does to, you know, transform it, you're still not going to get a man. You're, you're going to get a, a beast of some kind, but it's not going to be talking like a man. So this is a, this is a fable. Um, 
he You're can't right. he can't have imagined that this this was a possibility as much as it was a as a way of talking not about uh the transformation of animals into people but into um from people into animals because with with uh Darwin and Huxley who is even mentioned in the book um who was of course Wells's right, teacher right as was Prendick right or was it Montgomery or both yeah Prendick studied under Huxley right so in a way he's he's talking about himself and Huxley uh, was a um like a student of Darwin's or something, wasn't he? He's actually the single Darwin's greatest bulldog. exponent of Darwinism. Okay. Yeah, right. All right. Darwin's bulldog. Mm-hmm. And Wells was his lab assistant for almost two years. Oh, no kidding. I did not know that. Yeah, well, Wells came from a poor... Well, when Wells was born, was his family was himself. middle class. <laughs> mm-hmm. But ex- exactly, he was a apprentice too, right? Yeah. Uh, Wells came... His family was middle class when he was born, but his father died when he was young. And so he was poor most of the time growing up and couldn't afford to go to college unless he worked. And in fact, his job was to be... You know, he worked his way through college in part by being T.H. Huxley's lab assistant for close to two years. Oh, fascinating. So he, he, he yeah. knew modern evolution. He knew then modern evolution and science as well as any writer in the English language. Hmm. So, um, but yet, Jesse, you were talking about Huxley. Yeah, I just, uh, I think that, you know, it's it it is the uh, when when if you if you embrace uh, natural selection, you come to the conclusion that yeah, we are animals, and the revert to the animal nature. I, I another thing, I guess, that's mentioned in uh, some of the reviews of this book is that it's it's concerned about degeneration. Uh, if you can evolve, can you devolve, de-evolve? And I, I don't think necessarily it was about de-evolution as a, as it's much about, uh, being uncomfortable with our not so, uh, heavenly place in the, in the, uh, the family of animals, right? The, instead of being, you know, under, if, if we look at, the island as as a uh, microcosm of the universe. There's Moreau is God, and then under him is Montgomery, who is I don't know an an angel or something, right? Well, it's his vicar. Is okay. It's his pope, right? And then uh, and then descending down, we have. I mean, there's even the. Uh, I think Atwood mentions it. The there was a almost all the animals are um, are mammals that are turned into. Uh, humans, but he he mentions a, an experiment with a snake turning a, a snake into a man and the snake escaped and it bent a gun barrel into the shape of an S, right? <laughs> Which was serpent, supposed to be the serpent Satan. or Satan, yeah, right? right. Um, so it's the, it's the Garden of Eden, it's, it's the microcosm of the universe, and when Moreau dies, he's transformed into we're told, into a spirit that can Look out at the animals from the trees, and he can he can see you even better than he could before. So you better obey those laws, right? It's, but the uh, thing, the thing, that again, I I would stress that Prendick is an untrustworthy narrator. That when Prendick gives us that great chain of being, he's a liar. He's lying. He's a liar. Exactly. There is not a great chain of being. There is not a hierarchical organization. Moreau is not up there looking down. In fact, if there is to be any 
ethical life for humanity, it has to be horizontal. We have to function within a community. And that means, Brits, that you don't have the right to change Indians. I'm talking about South Asia now. You don't have the right to do that. You can't say, we're going to make you be different from what you were. That's not being in a community. You can come and offer people what you've got and see how they use it. That's different from imposing a law on them. No matter whether you do it by force of arms, which Moreau does, or the claim of church, which um, uh, which Prendick does, or the claim of law that mm. Moreau also yeah, does. That's starting you, to unify all this stuff, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so we've got to keep remembering that all of these things, they are, they're Prendick covering, his, covering himself to make himself out to be better than he is. He's writing the manuscript to leave as his legacy. And Charles is putting it forward so that if the truth ever comes to light, he will still be okay. Um, it's a fable, all right, but it's a, it's a fable about um, what it means to to recognize that human beings are animals but we are not merely beasts right and if we believe that human beings have a fuller nature that we actually have ethics then if a leopard were a man it would be right for him to eat to kill to eat and if a human being is a man and you don't happen to be a vegetarian then it's right for you to kill to eat but it's not right for you to kill a man to eat. Mm-hmm. And that theme of cannibalism as a crucial marker for murder runs all through Wells's work. This, by the way, is not my idea. It was a, uh, an insight that John it's Huntington in, has in, in Wells. The Logic of Fantasy. It's in mm-hmm. the time machine as well, right? Uh, with exactly. With the and the Eloy. Exactly. And you see it again and again and again. If, 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 you, if killing... What, what, what John Huntington says is that cannibalism is a transformation of murder so if eating something is cannibalistic then it means that killing the thing was murder yeah don't don't kill it unless you're going to eat it right (laughs) exactly well that's true too but don't kill it at all if it turns out to be one of us right i guess though if if you if it turns out to be one of us you better eat it (laughs) well well all right (laughs) which is why we should be more careful about what we kill Exactly. Exactly. But I, I think you're right. I mean, talk about this being a fable. Um, the beginning of chapter three is a, a fine example of <clears throat> this as a fable. And it's also a fine example of Prendix um, keeping the truth from his reader. Um, we left the cabin and found a man at the companion way at the companion obstructing our way. He was standing on the ladder with his back to us. This is his first sighting of Malay, peering over the combing of the hatchway. He was, I could see, a misshapen man, short, broad, and clumsy, with a crooked back, a hairy neck, and a head sunk between his shoulders. He was dressed in dark blue serge and had peculiarly thick, coarse black hair. I heard the unseen dogs growl furiously, and forthwith he ducked back, coming into contact with the hand I put out to feel myself fend him off from myself. He turned with animal swiftness. Then he turns his face. He sees something suggestive of a muzzle. Okay. He turned with animal swiftness. Now, that phrase, animal swiftness, is a metaphor. Mm-hmm. And when we read it, we think, oh, well, that's the way in which he turned. 
But of course, it turns out that it's not a metaphor. It's literal. Mm -hmm. He is an animal, and he really turns with animal swiftness. Well, Freud says in his essay on the uncanny that one of the ways you create the uncanny, which I would also call the fantastic, is you take the metaphorical and you make it literal. So, you know, I walked into the room and cast my eye about. That's Philip K. Dick's uh, short story um, called uh, The Eyes Have It, in which uh, a man <laughs> discovers an alien invasion by reading a novel. He, he says uh, um, his, he took her hand. <laughs> he, gave, <laughs> right. he gave her, uh, she gave him her heart. <laughs> it's like, what kind of people are these? They can take their bodies apart. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it actually happens, it, it happens all through literature. It's, it's, it happens all the time, hmm. right? When you say, uh, you know, my friend is, has a monstrous idea. And then it turns out that it walks out of his house and eats you, right? You, you, know, you take the metaphorical and make it literal and you, you get the, the uncanny, the fantastic, whatever. And we have that here. So it looks like a beast fable. Mm -hmm. It looks like an incredibly complicated, worked out version of an Aesop's fable. It looks like a beast fable, except it becomes not a fable, but a fantasy because the metaphorical is made literal. And that phrase, um, animal swiftness, um, if I'm mis not mistaken, I'll see if I can find it. Um, at the end of the novel, um, Prendick speaks about his own, about his eyes looking around with animal swiftness, mm -hmm. letting us know that he has in fact been marked he just the same as Maling. Um, I'm I'm not finding it right now, and I don't want to slow down our discussion. So mm -hmm. you can either believe me or find that I I'm mistaken. <laughs> um, one one uh, one of the fascinating. Hmm. Yeah, oh, we haven't heard from Tam in a while. Hope he's okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm still here. Um, one of the uh, one of the things that um, uh, I didn't spot in my reading, but I noticed in uh, or read in in Atwood's essays, uh, one was. Uh, a, uh, apparently quite blatant reference to the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Sure. Um, when, when Moreau escapes from the Island, uh, near the end of the novel, he tries to make a raft. He can't make, <laughs> he makes it too far away from the beach. The materials he makes it out are bad. Uh, that fails, but he luckily spies a ship on the horizon or a boat on the horizon. The, Boat comes in uh, uh, with two figures on board, and uh, and the it turns out that they're both dead. Uh, we don't, I don't think we're ever told where the you know what the name of the boat was. Like it said on the Lady Vane, his right. Mm -hmm. But these two figures show up on the beach. Um, he dumps them out. Their bodies come apart, and I was thinking, well, that goes back to the. The first time he was in a boat with two other guys, right? Yeah, we think it's the Epicoquania, by the way, because it says uh, that one of the two men had a shock of red hair, like right. the captain of the Epicoquania. Right. Mm -hmm. But uh, I mean, <laughs> they must have had some uh, story of their own, right, to get end up in the boat like that. So I was just thinking, well, what what happened to those two companions? You know, the the uh, the 
The ones that sank like a rock? Yeah, the ones that sank like stones. Is mm-hmm. is uh, They came back. <laughs> they came back in another boat um, to haunt that... him, but he doesn't seem to care. He just dumps them on the beach and sails away. Well, if you believe that they were dead when they arrived on the island. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Uh-huh. Well, look, I mean, we've been talking about the, the, the Christian imagery here, right? So rabbits are a clear sign of fertility, right? They, they are associated with Easter, with the resurrection of the dead God. Um, so much so that they bring eggs, <laughs> another symbol of fertility. Um, when, when Prendick leaves the island, we are told that he winds up with a gun and he has two bullets. And what does he do? Does he take some rabbits with him so that he, they will stay alive and he can have their meat fresh when he needs it as he goes off? No. He expends those bullets rather than keeping them for his own protection. He immediately expends those bullets and kills two rabbits. Mm. So he is taking this symbol of Christian resurrection and destroying it for his own benefit. The boat comes in with two men, nominally dead, but Given what happens at the beginning, I, you know, with the, the other two sailors, I'm not so sure. The boat comes in with two dead men, and Prendick goes out with two dead rabbits. Right. So mm-hmm. what we have is this continual sense of a boat of community in which Prendick ensures that he is, in fact, the only living occupant, and the other occupants are there to sustain him. This is exactly the opposite of what a true Christian would want, where to live the life of Christ is to die for others. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of the uh, final things I'll take from this collection of essays was um, uh, what I thought was kind of interesting is Atwood thinks that um, the War of the Worlds is a kind of spiritual sequel to The Island of Dr. Moreau. Uh, this is what she wrote, writes. Prendick forsakes his earlier dabblings in biology and turns instead to chemistry and astronomy. He finds, quote-unquote, hope and a sense of heaven, uh, uh, sorry, a sense of infinite peace and protection in the glittering hosts of heaven. As if to squash even the faint hope, Wells almost immediately wrote The War of the Worlds, in which, uh, I think it's actually a couple of years later, uh, in which not War of the Worlds is 1898. Yeah, I think it's a couple of years down the road, but yeah. um, in which peace n- and, n- and protection, but malice and destruction come down upon the he- from the heavens in the form of the monstrously superior uh, Martians. And the War of the Worlds can be further read as a gloss on Darwin. Uh, is this where evolution will lead to the abandonment of the body to giant, sexless, bloody, blood-sucking heads? with huge brains and tentacle-like fingers. Um, <laughs> but it can also be read as a thoroughly chilling coda to the island of Dr. Moreau. Uh, would you would you think of the two... Con- I mean, it seems to me that ta- the time machine has something uh, of a connection to this book. Uh, not, you know, a sequel of any kind, but 
just thematically sort of thinking about the same things. He's working with the same... Uh, although this one, I guess, is a little bit more of uh, Frankenstein than than uh, the time machine. I, I think I think the connections are stronger or weaker depending upon which aspect of the work you look at. Um, I think Jesse, um, if if one thinks of the the first of all, I think that that reading the last line and so in hope and solitude my story ends. Uh, to read that as if there as actual hope for us is ridiculous. I mean, by this time, we should be aware that Prendick represents himself as he would like to be seen, not as he is, consistently. And I guess there's hope in that he's hoping that this manuscript will make people think better of him than he deserves. He's certainly in solitude, and if the book proves anything, it's that living in solitude undercuts the possibility of hope. Real hope depends upon living in community. Human beings are not isolated beasts. We are social animals, and we have to live that way to have any possibility of true human hope. So I think you know, we shouldn't take this at its word as if then the War of the Worlds shows what happens if you depend too much on science. Oops, you'd be like Prendick. It's not a sequel at all. But from the political standpoint, the local political standpoint— you know, in eighteen the eighteen nineties in in England, where they are fighting the Boer Wars in uh, South Africa and so on, uh, where they are trying to uh, maintain the uh, rest of population of India. Um, both the Island of Dr. Moreau and the War of the Worlds are anti-colonial. I mean, both of them clearly suggest that just because you're strong enough and have enough technology to impose yourself on others doesn't mean you should. So in that sense, I wouldn't call it a sequel, but I would call it a companion. Yeah. Um, hmm. But but they both um, they both as does the as does the time machine um, deal with uh, evolution as the sort of underlying scientific justification for what what then becomes the dramatic narrative present situation. In the time machine, however, the 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 dominant political message isn't anti-colonial. It's against the separation of the managerial class from the working class. Yeah, I can see that the theme of communities in almost all those, even uh, the Invisible Man. We we did absolutely we talked about mm-hmm. that on this podcast yeah. one time, and the Invisible Man is definitely about community. Indeed, and in fact, uh, uh, for the for the for for many many years, uh, certainly up until the 1960s, when people sort of denigrated science fiction broadly. Um, Wells was still recognized as a great writer, even though we all kind of knew that his greatest writing was science fiction. And in those days, um, his story, The Country of the Blind, was considered one of the greatest stories in the English language. And that story um, is one in which Someone stumbles into. Um, you guys know the story. Yeah, I think it's a yeah. um, it's a fantasy, isn't it? Well, kind of. I mean, um, what happens is that uh, a community becomes isolated in a in an I believe an Andean valley <clears throat> because of an upheaval that that makes it impossible for them to leave, and uh, some disease, I guess it is, makes them blind, and but they manage to survive. And they develop a society that entirely accommodates their blindness. They have 
paths between the huts and on the way to the fields they tend that have pebbles on them so they can hear the uh, each other walking and they can feel where they're going and and they become utterly adept at living without sight as indeed it's possible to do and this guy comes in um he's sort of he's being chased and he falls into the valley um they nurse him back to health and he looks around, and he finally realizes that these people who are doing everything for him, um, they're blind. And so he thinks he's going to be the king because he can see. And, of course, what turns out to be the case, just as in the, with the invisible man, one man, no matter how powerful, is not a match for a community that's well organized. And uh, when he says he wants to marry one of their, their women, um, they say, fine, but you're going to have to become like us. Mm. And when they offer to to blind him, he tries to escape, climbs part way up the mountain, and slips and falls back down to his death. It doesn't make uh, very uh, very um, well. It doesn't make very nice protagonists, does he? All of his all of his major <clears throat> characters are, you know, like in in the Invisible Man, he's a horrible human being. Terrible, terrible. They're all terrible. they're all sort of. I mean, I thought Prendick was relatively mild but um the, you're reading it you're reading him as a much more um calculating asshole than i i would have, <laughs> i would have well i i think that's part of what we're supposed to pick up on with that phrase a private gentleman yeah right if you are really private you are not a gentleman if you really have means you have an obligation to participate in the world I think. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> By the yep. way, in The Invisible Man, again, as with uh, in The Island of Dr. Moreau, the, 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 the Christian resonances are everywhere. When, when Griffin, the Invisible Man, wants to make somebody be his helper, he, um, you know, he, he comes upon this, this vagabond out in the fields and uh, speaks to him and says, you know, you shall do what I say. And so Griffin is making himself into a god figure the same way Moreau does. And when the guy says, well, I don't see it. Where's that voice coming from? Um, Moreau whacks him. I mean, uh, Griffin punches him. Uh, the guy's name is Thomas Marvel. <laughs> so, you know, he's he is involved in a Marvel here, but he's doubting Thomas. He won't accept that the God figure is the God figure until he can actually feel his wounds, as Jesus says to the disciple Thomas, right? Mm. So, so Griffin is aping God, the way Moreau apes God, um, which is not, again, for Wells to tell us that we should be Christians, but rather we should understand that what Christianity is talking about really does matter. <laughs> it's just not a hierarchical world. We have obligations to each other. I think it's a. I think you're right calling this a fable, and I think it's a great fable. Um, one of the uh, one of the things I was trying to do with this with the story is keep track of all the. The different uh, beasts, animal, animal beasts. Uh, I remember at one point there was an ocelot mentioned, an ocelot man, <laughs> and I was thinking, well, I guess he's short. <laughs> he's like a small cat, uh, <laughs> a small cat man. And and uh, I, as I, I, you know, he, there was also the hybrids, and there was the pigmen, and right, I was just thinking, okay, that these are all the different uh, races that the Europeans are subduing, or something, uh, you know, and the half breeds. I'm not sure exactly, but. One of the ones that struck me out as um, as humorous, and I, I, I guess I laughed a few times in this novel. It's it's not really a really happy novel to laugh at, but 
Um, the narrator in the audiobook is, it, I thought he was really good. Well, I don't know what you guys thought, but I thought he was great. Yeah, I um, thought he was good too. And he, he had this great voice for the, the ape slash monkey man. Um, and the line he's in, he says, he's a five man, a five man, a five man, just like me. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, and the, the narrator, um, the, the narrator says, he had an idea, I believe, that to gabble about names that meant nothing was the proper use of speech. He called it, quote-unquote, big things, to distinguish it from, quote-unquote, little things, the same everyday interests of life. If I ever made a remark he did not understand, he would praise it very much. <laughs> Ask me to say it again. Learn it by heart and go off repeating it with a word wrong here or there to all the milder beast people. He thought nothing of what was plain and comprehensible. I invented some very curious big things for his especial use. I think now that he was the silliest creature I have ever met. He had developed in the most wonderful way the distinctive silliness of a man without losing one jot of the natural folly of a monkey. And when I read that, uh, I thought I thought this was a humorous line, but now thinking back originally, you know, to what what his character is, he's actually he's being mean here, right? He's he's teasing this poor creature who thinks, you know, kind of idolizes him. I agree with you completely. If you go two pages earlier than that, Jesse, uh -huh. I think on a on a rereading you would pay extra attention to a line that sets this up. They were staggered at my assurance, Prendick says. An animal may be ferocious and cunning enough, but it takes a real man to tell a lie. Mm, yeah. So Prendick is letting us know, or the implied author is letting us know, what language is like when used by an actual human being. And by comparison to that, he really is being incredibly mean to, to uh, the monkey man, because the monkey man, you know... He just wants to enjoy language. He's like a baby he's, learning he's, new words. He's happy. He's happy. He's one of the few beasts that seem to have, um, uh, you know, come come away with some benefit to all this vivisecting. Yes. And and uh, you know the big things. I mean, this is the philosopher, right? Rather than the, oh, what are we having for lunch? And did you see what Martha was wearing? You know, <laughs> it's uh, it's the big, it's the the. You know, it's like a, a professor putting, uh, deliberately putting the wrong ideas into somebody's head just to make them confused. And then, you know, going off and smiling to himself. That, that'd be like, hey, that's a really mean thing to do. Absolutely right. I agree with you completely. Agree with you completely. May I bring, I'd like to bring up one other, small, it's a small point in the book, but I think <laughs> it's kind of worth, um, um, j just as, uh, Frankenstein is so much about community, and therefore there is some stuff about sex and marriage in it. Um, but sex and marriage isn't the crucial thing. Um, but but still, it's it's very much there. You know, he's gonna Victor is gonna make uh, his offspring. He just isn't gonna have the collaboration of a woman. Um, well, Moreau takes some time to explain um, uh, to to Prendick what he's doing and through our whole discussion today so far folks um we've been saying 
man-making, a beast man, a leopard man, a chimp man, and so on. Man, 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 man. Well, in chapter 14, called Dr. Moreau Explains, uh, about the third page, it says, I asked him why he had taken the human form as a model. There seemed to me then, and there still seems to me now, a strange wickedness in that choice. He confessed that he had chosen that form by chance. Well, that's no goddamn confession at all. That's obviously a lie. God creates man in his own image, right? So this is not a confession. And if, in fact, Moreau really said that, then it was a lie. He was covering himself, and that shows us how much Prendick is like Moreau and vice versa. And then Moreau is reported to have said explicitly, I might just as well have worked to form sheep into llamas and llamas into sheep. I suppose there is something the human, uh, something uh, in the human form that appeals to the artistic turn of mind more powerfully than any other animal shape can. And of course, at that point, when he uses the word artistic, that's a bit of self-reflexivity because Wells is using the human shape here in his novel to make to focus our attention. But I've confined myself. Uh, but I've not confined myself to man making. Once or twice, he was silent for a minute, perhaps. These years, how they have slipped by, and here I've wasted a day saving your life, and I'm now wasting an hour explaining myself. Now, you've got to ask, what's in that blop, blop, blop? Here I am, all these years have passed away, have slipped away. All of these times I was doing man-making, what the hell is the other thing he has not confined himself to? And it's clear, it seems to me, if you stop to read the silences, it's Mm -hmm. woman-making. And Moreau has tried to, I mean, this is just this little hint that even when it comes to the possibility of the central community that a person can forge, that with a life partner, Moreau tried to make that entirely a matter of his own direction, his own creation. And why do we not find these women around the island or these these beast girls? Mm. Um, because Moreau found that they were entirely unacceptable for him. They didn't work what he, he they weren't what he wanted. Although that is in fact something that the the movie with Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando picks up on and exaggerates at great length. Uh, uh, the uh, original um, uh, movie version, as well, the uh, Island of Lost Souls has has a, he's making a wo- uh, the perfect woman, uh, a beast woman out of the puma. Right. Um, uh, actually, you know, I I was thinking about uh, what you were saying in those lines with the, uh, but I have occasionally dot dot dot. Um, I know Brian Aldis. Sort of re- rewrites a lot of uh, classics. He, uh, I just found out that he re- rewrote a book. Uh, this book, he wrote it. It's called "The Other Island of Doctor Moreau." So I guess that's um, his ideas as to what was going on in those in those missing lines. Um, could well be. Could well be. Um, so he, he did. Uh, uh, I did Frankenstein on Bound, Bound, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, but you know, here, here the puma. I mean, in the book, not in, not in, uh, in the movies. Um, here, the puma is important to us mostly because that's the animal who's being um, 
vivisected in the course of the novel. And we're told early on, why bother writing a fable like this at all? Uh, in the last paragraph of chapter 8, it says, It is when suffering finds a voice and sets our nerves quivering that this pity comes troubling us. So Wells wants to give the suffering that Europeans are imposing on others a voice, disturbing enough that we will be moved by it. It's propaganda. Yeah. I guess uh, uh, there was a real history in England with vivisection uh, prior to the novel. Um, oh, yeah. People doing it. And we still have the the phrase around. I, I used it in university myself, you know. Uh, if all religion is okay, what if my religion that I make up is uh, got violent vivisection as the thing we do every day? You know, well, violent vivisection is sort of a contradict. You know, it's it's a you don't need to have the violent thing right. because <laughs> it's, it's, right, it's uh, it, it's implied. But the you know we don't see a lot of vivisection anymore, right? Right. Uh, so he's addressing. The contemporary, and is that why when when I'm reading this book, I, I'm not sensing, uh, you know, I guess in the same way with cl class and and the time machine, because they are from their period, uh, the themes that are so closely addressed are more foreign to us than they would be to a contemporary audience. I I think in the in the specific detailed sense, you must be right. I think in the more general sense of what does it mean to abuse something um, without concern for its own rights, it's not foreign to us. Right. Yeah, uh, this is, a, this is a, a book PETA would have something to say about, whether positive or negative, I have no idea. But <laughs> this is something that uh, speaks to a lot of people still, I guess. Right, right. Um, when I, I, don't, I have... I have not been to the British Museum in many, many years, but um, I did research there for a couple of months when uh, in uh, 1973, and uh, I noticed that right across what was then the main entrance, right across the street from what was then the main entrance, um, there was the main offices of the British Anti-Vivisection League. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, and that's I think pretty they were still there in the nineties. <laughs> well, there you go. So, I mean, clearly there are people still caring about that. By the way, just you know, uh, I don't, not particularly recommending this for anyone in particular, but just in case uh, anyone is kind enough to be listening to our podcast and would like to know some other uh, aspects of the end of Doctor Moreau, uh, Adolfo Bioy Casares, who is. Uh, considered by some to be the the greatest disciple of Jorge Luis Borges. Um, and Borges, I think of as, as one of the giant writers of the 20th century. Um, his most famous work is called, uh, in English, The Invention of Morel, uh, M-O-R-E-L, um, La Invención de Morel. Um, and in fact, it is a pastiche of the island of Dr. Moreau. It's uh, it it's not this story again, but it's um, it's a whole other story that owes some of its concern and its questioning of the the utility of trying to use technology to make the world the way we want it to be. Um, uh, 
in he he adopts all of that from Wells to to have this other fantasy, uh, scientific fantasy set on an island. Uh, so it's it's called the invention of Morel, but this island is dominated by the invention that Morel made and put on this island to try to make the island into his own image. So there is actually a real follow-up book, in mm. a sense. Not a sequel, but uh, but a real follow-up book. Yeah, in, in the introduction to this collection of essays, uh, uh, Atwood quotes uh, Borges, who call, apparently called the island of Dr. Muro a quote-unquote atrocious miracle. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, think, uh, I think Wells is also quoted as saying that he thought it was a uh, uh, youthful blasphemy looking back at the book. Hmm. That's an odd word for Wells yeah. to use since he was not a believer himself. Yeah, it is odd. It's interesting. How did the people at that time react to the story? Did it, were they really freaked out by it? You Sold know? like hotcakes, I know that. But I, I I've, haven't read reviews, so I couldn't say. I, didn't, I couldn't find any uh, contemporary reviews that were, uh, uh, you know, out there somewhere. But I'm sure they exist, so it'd be interesting to follow that up. Yeah. It's, it's hard to remember nowadays um, that there was a period 10 years after this was written. I mean, 1906 would be a good year um, in which Wells and James were considered to be the two greatest writers in the English language. And, you know, they had that very public debate, uh, writing articles back and forth about each other's writing, um, in which James is arguing for the, the, the real value of the novel being the exploration of uh, individual psyche and, and sentiment and emotion. And Wells is arguing that the real value of the novel is to give us a sense of society and historical forces, that there's a, a social role for the novel, not just the private individual role of the, the person reading. One um, is the big picture and one is the little picture, right? <laughs> one is the, the psychology and the other is the sociology. Yeah, but it was thought of as a as an either or situation. I, I, I can't say that I come the away loving the characters. I don't go to Wells books for great characters. I go for them for big ideas. I think. I agree. On the other hand, um, the Island of Doctor Moreau. I, I haven't counted the words, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if the Island of Doctor Moreau is um, no longer than many of the great works of James that we think of as short stories. Indeed. You know, this is, uh, for, it's a four hour book, I think. Uh, let's see, just skip right. Yeah, four hours and seven minutes. That's how long it takes the narrator to read it. Uh-huh. That is an incredibly short novel by today's standards. But think of how much is just in every chapter. You, we could, we could do a whole discussion of just one chapter, um, and, and spend hours at it because it's so layered and, crafted to tell the story yeah i agree completely we don't, we don't get that in the contemporary uh, i mean yeah i think the last novel we did was um was the Werner vinci novel wasn't it rainbow's end rainbow's end and at least that's the last one i was part of yeah i think yeah i think i have 16 16 hours or something like that and i felt like there is stuff in there and uh but i i still i think we've only done about half of 
half of the ideas I, I was thinking of, <laughs> you know, and I'm sure I'm missing a lot of stuff, so. Wells, I I think Wells is um, undervalued because he is so easy to read. Uh, I think, to take just a a small example, um, the notion of of consumption, of food and drink, um, you were saying that we could do a lot about drink, and indeed we can do a lot about food and drink, the whole notion of consumption. And what does it mean as a, not simply as a way of using something, but as a way of incorporating that something into your own body, making some other substance, some other creature's substance perhaps, into your substance. That has to do with communion. That has to do with religion, therefore it has to do with community. It's got to do with the wafer and the wine. Um, this notion of consumption ties back with the ipecacuanha as the plant that gives us an emetic, an emetic mm. that makes us vomit. I the, that. The, the eating of the rabbits tells us something about which are licit and which are illicit kinds of foods. Um, the, the, we could just talk about eating in this novel and all of the, the language that has to do with eating, that has to do with consume, that has to do with drink, that has to do with um, self-sustenance, would form a whole other pattern. And Wells gets it, gets it to us and, and does not explicitly say anything about what the word Ipecacuanha means, mm-hmm. does not explicitly say anything about Christianity um, until Prendick says, you know, I'm standing for Moreau here. Um, and yet, he knows all that stuff, right? He has learned it all. Um, you, you, you may know about his biography. I mean, he couldn't afford to go to school. And he, he met this headmaster who just gave him books. And Wells would read the books. And in those days, uh, if a school had a student pass the O-level or A-level exams, those national exams, the ordinary level or advanced levels exams, the ones you had to pass enough of to get into Oxford or Cambridge, um, this, this guy would give Wells books from his own library. Wells would read the books, take the exams, and they'd split the bounty. And that's, that's how Wells managed to get his most of his pre uh, university education, just doing it on his own. He could eat these things, consume again, and and organize them. So in 1920, he published The Outline of History, which was four hardback volumes. It was the first effort in the course, as far as I know, it was the first effort to make a history of the world that wasn't a history of Europe, it was truly a history of the world, Africa, Asia, whatever, and it wasn't a history that focused on presidents and heroes and battles. It was a history that studied human movements, geography, um, the the movements of cultures. They talked about um, uh, talked about famines. It talked about the the great patterns that moved human society, as well as you know. A battle here and there, of course. The outline of history, and these are the days, 1920, when a single hardback book cost as much as a workman would earn in a day. The set of four sold half a million copies, sorry, a quarter of a million copies in the first six months of its American edition alone. 
I mean, Wells single-handedly learned so much that he could produce this book that was so powerful that people would just, I mean, they just bought it and bought it and bought it. It's like, it's, it's sort of equivalent to Samuel Johnson, um, making that incredible 1755 dictionary of the English language all by himself. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of guy Wells was. He, he knew so much and it's, you find the traces of it in his books, you know, like that ad and I, who the hell would have known all that stuff. Right? Uh, that that's a great find, you know. But he but he does. He's got that stuff, and so you know, you read this book and you think, well, okay, yeah, I get it. It's a it's a fable, and it is. But the deeper you dig, the more it ramifies into one aspect of our culture and our history after another. It's just astonishing how much Wells repays close attention. But he doesn't get it because he's not hard to read. It's like that sentence that I that we were looking at where ravine rhymes with mm-hmm. Malin. You know, if you don't slow down and read it out loud, how would you know that the guy writes like a poet? Mm-hmm. Hmm. I really appreciate you uh, coming on. And uh, I guess, uh, Scott, you, you've been quiet. And Talma, you've been quiet. I've been, been sitting here. here totally fascinated. I've enjoyed know, myself it's, immensely. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's, uh, it's always great to get uh, uh, Ravkin on because he's, he's, he's so preferable professorial in the way that I love. It's, it's telling stories about the stories that we're reading. Mm-hmm. Well, I apologize for going on at such length. I, no. I, you, I, you, you can tell, though, that it's difficult for me to restrain myself when it comes to a book like this, which is, it matters so much to me, but I, I should have listened more to what it <laughs> means to everybody else, too. I'm sorry. No, goodness. No, I, I, no I'm, I'm fine with you doing all the talking (laughs) (laughs) oh really oh i've been fascinated i really appreciate it well you guys are kind i really Mm -hmm. yeah i i think this is uh a very successful book for um for what was a very difficult i i was i was just struggling to find some connections that i could you know find a through theme but uh, I'm not, uh, maybe on, upon re-listening to the podcast, I'll find, uh, find, you know, the one idea, I guess maybe it's just, I'm trying to think of it as too, it's too simple and it's not simple. Life's not simple, I guess. And this book isn't simple. Mm-hmm. It seems simple, but it isn't. <laughs> I, I was just relating to Lord of the Flies or something like law going away. And well, I think that's definitely a response to this in a way or. At least uh, taking a lot from this, right? I, but there's a lot more to it. It's funny that the, it's funny that Lord of the Flies is is the book that they give kids to read, right? I guess it's because it has kids as the as the heroes or mm-hmm. the main characters, anyways. But I, I don't find it a particularly uh, wonderful book. Maybe you know, they if, want to. Sorry, uh, I was gonna joke that maybe they just want the kids to. Uh, Go savage and disobey all the laws. <laughs> it's almost yeah. like the worst book to give them. <laughs> yeah, I haven't read The Inheritors in years and years and years, and I've never discussed it with anybody. So I, it hasn't gelled perhaps well enough in my mind. But on my vague recollection, it seems to me that if I were going to give kids um, a book of Golding to read. It would be the inheritors, not not Lord of the Flies. Um, they're both science fiction, but um, 
of course, not admitted science fiction or he couldn't have won the Nobel Prize. Um, but The Inheritors really is about such a tremendous sense of sadness as your time passes and how much you owe to being part of a community. Um, in a way, The Inheritors is an elegiac um, recognition of the importance of community while the Lord of the Flies is a a violent <clears throat> demonstration of what happens as we try we strive even in inappropriate ways <clears throat> to to create a community. Um, I, I think the inheritors would be much better for children than uh, the Lord of the Flies. This uh, this is a science fiction novel. I didn't yeah, it's that. well. It. I mean, am I remembering the it's wrong? Prehistorical. It's uh, it says yeah, it's uh, like the, it's, personal favorite concern. It's his personal favorite concerns the extinction of the last remaining tribe of Neanderthals, the hands of the more sophisticated and violent Homo sapiens. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Yeah, and 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 we we get the viewpoints. Uh, yeah, I mean, we we see what it's like to. To, to fail and to have your time pass and your your whole culture uh, fall fall away. It's uh, as I say, my recollection of it is uh, is terribly sad. Um, but the the Neanderthals fail in part because Homo sapiens is more capable, um, and you know that's that's an inescapable reality. But our viewpoint character, who is a Neanderthal. Um, is ever more isolated and alone. And the pathos that that carries, it seems to me, uh, at least in my recollection, is humanizing for us as readers. Whereas I don't think that the, uh, the, the other novel humanizes us. It just reminds us that we have very violent propensities. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.